0: Well, tonight we're going to start looking at Ephesians. Last week we finished up Galatians. And uh, Galatians and Ephesians are quite a bit different. You know, Paul wrote Galatians to a group of people, uh, a group of churches that had allowed some people to come into the church and cause all kinds of problems and start teaching stuff that wasn't biblical. Um, and we're messing with everybody's minds and pulling them away from Jesus. And so Paul wrote Galatians in response to that to try to get those people back on track. Well, Ephesians, uh, e- Ephesus, where he's writing this to, the people who live in Ephesus are called Ephesians. E- Ephesus was a major city, huge. Uh, it was a, uh, one of the wealthiest cities in the whole Roman Empire. It was really the leading city in the wealthiest region in all of the Roman Empire. Uh, only two cities in the Roman Empire were larger, Rome and Alexandria. Uh, it's estimated that 250,000 people lived in Ephesus at the time, uh, which for the time was massive. I mean, comparatively today, that would be like a megacity in Japan. I mean, like huge 250,000 people in the first century uh, was unbelievable. And when Paul went there, he, he uh, began teaching in Ephesus uh, personally, and it's recorded in Acts chapter 19. Uh, He went to Ephesus and began his ministry there. Uh, He started by going into a synagogue there in Ephesus, uh, and then his teaching group became so popular, he had to move to a large conference center in town and teach there. And he taught regularly, uh, the way the language is in Acts chapter 19. It's implied that he taught daily. He would go to this conference center area, And set up and he would teach every single day and people would come every single day uh, and he would teach there. And this went on for about three years uh, that he taught daily in this place. Well, this letter takes place about five or so years later. And he's writing this letter from prison. You see, Paul went to a prison and spent a couple years there. And then he gets transferred from there to another prison in Rome where he spends several years. So he's in one prison for a couple years. He goes to another prison in Rome uh, for about three or so years. But he's in this prison in Rome. The year is about AD 60, and he's there in prison. Now, prisons in first century were quite a bit different than prisons today. Um, Sometime it was house house arrest, but uh, more often than not, Roman prisons were dark and dingy and gross, and the government didn't pay for anything. You wanted food, you had to pay for it yourself. Or you had to have somebody on the outside paying for your food. You wanted clothes, you want anything. Somebody had to provide all of that. The government didn't provide anything. All they gave you was a hole to stick you in uh, and a guard to keep you from running away. Uh, and so Paul is there. There's provision being made for him. And he's writing this letter to the Ephesian church from a prison in the capital city, Rome. And so let's start Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, he starts this letter like he does most letters, and honestly, this is the way, uh, this was the common opening of first century correspondence. First century letters is the person who wrote the letter would put their name first. And so he writes here that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, uh, that he said he's an apostle uh, that that apostleship was made through the will of God. It was not his intention. It was not any other man's plan. It was God's plan for him to be this. Uh, and so he, he, rather than his state of being an apostle, uh, it was the direct result of God's involvement in his life. And so he's writing this. He says there in the second half of that verse, to the saints, that is the believers who are in Ephesus, uh, but not just people who call themselves believers. Hey. You notice that there he says to the saints who are in ephesus and are faithful in christ jesus so he's writing to the ones who have remained faithful they faithfully follow jesus come what may and so he's writing to the faithful believers in ephesus you know churches then were not organized like churches are today with a whole bunch of denominations meeting in various buildings around town back then christians met wherever and whenever they could And in many cases, they met in houses almost daily. And then periodically, they would get together in large groups. So, the idea of many scholars is that this letter was meant to be distributed among the groups of those little churches there that meet around the city of Ephesus, of those believers uh, that are meeting all around town. And so, he writes this letter to the Christians who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, don't raise your hand, but does anybody know Christians who are not faithful? I can tell on your face, you do. (laughs) yeah. Uh, But he's writing this to the faithful ones. Uh, Verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is very similar to Galatians. You know, Paul said grace and peace to you there also. And Paul can't himself grant grace or peace. Only God can provide true and full grace and peace. And so this phrase he's using, grace to you and peace, Uh, He uses this constantly throughout his letters. It is really a a prayerful blessing that he's offering for the people to whom he's writing. He's praying that the Lord will grant his readers grace and peace in their lives. Now that grace and peace comes from God, and so Paul is praying that over his readers for grace and peace. Uh, Verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now in the Greek, verses 3 through 14 are all one sentence. One massive run-on sentence. See, if you're Paul, you can make up your, <laughs> the way you write however you want. And so he writes this huge run, uh, run-on sentence. And we're going to get into something real heady in a sec. I hope you're ready for it Um, because he dives headfirst into predestination. And we're going to talk all about it. Um, Predestination in the inner circle of churches is one of the most controversial subjects because people get really mad about their side of the issue. Uh, We're going to talk about that and talk about how Paul presents it here. Um, And so this is all one sentence, all these verses here, this whole section, 3 through 14. And so look at what he says, Blessed be the God God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're to bless and praise God as best we can, just as He has blessed us with every possible spiritual blessing that exists through the gift of Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection. The blessing of Christ came with the decision of God to bless the world through Him. And that decision... Uh, was made before the foundation of the world. He says there, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That decision to bless us through Jesus, he made before he even created anything. He made that decision to bless us with Christ. Uh, God knew in his all-knowing mind that mankind that he was going to make would sin and that mankind would be in need of a Savior. So God chose to send Jesus as that Savior even before the world was formed. God knew how it was all going to play out before he even started. And so he had already planned to send Jesus before he even started. And so it's God's plan from that moment for all people to come to salvation in him, to come to belief in him, to receive the blessing of Christ, for all people to receive the blessing of Christ that he decided on before the foundation of the world. And we know that not just from this passage, uh, Peter speaks of this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Peter writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so what Peter writes there, this is what the phrasing he uses is very important. Peter says that God does not wish that any should perish. Now that word wish in the Greek means to will. God does not will that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Which is very interesting language that Paul uses there, but, uh, that Peter uses, but Paul uses very similar language in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, when he says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The word that Paul uses there in 1 Timothy chapter 2, when he said God desires all people to be saved, desires means to will in the Greek. So God wills all people to be saved. But how how is this possible? If God wills all people to be saved and God wills that no one should perish and that all should come to repentance, how does that play out? Because not everybody does, right? It's not God's plan or His will that any should choose to not receive salvation. And so what God does, He freely offers salvation. And it is His will that all people should receive that salvation. But even so, people still choose not to believe. They choose to not follow God's will for salvation. You ever know anybody who doesn't follow God's will? Yourself, maybe? And so if God's will is for people to believe in Jesus, to for people to be saved, people sometimes choose not to follow God's will there. See, God chose, as Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, God chose whom to bless before the salvation of the world. Uh, To bless before the foundation of the world, which according to 2 Peter 3, 9 and 1 Timothy 2, 4, that is all people. God chose to bless all people before the foundation of the world. He chose before the foundation of the world who should be holy and blameless, everyone. And yet some choose to not be those things by rejecting that offer of salvation. Y'all with me so far? Anybody not with me? Okay, good. i want to keep you with me as we go, because Paul's going to get a little bit deeper in a minute. You see, Scripture is the lens through which we are meant to interpret Scripture. Not our own opinions, and not the opinions of other people. Even if those other people are really, really smart. And they're even highly revered because of their smartness. If any of those other opinions do not align with all of Scripture, then those opinions have to be tossed out. And so when there's stuff like here in Ephesians chapter 1, we may not fully understand, we have to take guys like Peter and guys like Paul and 1 Timothy and say, okay, using their own words, how can we interpret this passage? And so if Peter and Paul both say that it was God's will for everybody to be saved, then through that lens, we have to look at Ephesians chapter 1. And so that's the lens we're going to look at. And that's how we're going to, tonight, that's how we're going to interpret Paul's words on, on predestination in these next few verses. Uh, So look at the last two words of verse 4 and then also verses 5 and 6. So here we go. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. He predestined us. Now, some people take this and interpret this to mean, using this language through the rest of this passage, that God chose certain people to be saved and certain people to not be saved. And they didn't have a choice in the matter. That God chose beforehand some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell. So that's what some people say. I don't believe that. I don't think Scripture backs that up at all. Um, some of them go off of a, 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 um, a very smart man who lived hundreds of years ago, John Calvin, uh, who said something similar to that. But in Calvin's own writings, he says, well, I think this, but I could be wrong in this. Um, he takes it to the extreme on, on one of these lines of thinking. but when he writes here that God predestined us, the base root of the word goes back to the idea of God knew beforehand. But also, again, like we just talked about, if we're interpreting Scripture through the lens of Scripture and God's will is for all people to be saved and yet some people choose not to be saved, then the predestination, God's will for us, would be for all people to be saved. And so if He predestined us for adoption as, uh, to Himself as sons, that's everybody. If we're interpreting Scripture through the lens of Scripture. So, because of God's love, God decided before He created the world to adopt us, all people, into His family through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul writes there in verse 5 that this predestined adoption was the purpose of His, last word of verse 5. It was the purpose of His what? Yeah. His will, which is a word we've been talking about, which we've already seen that word, 2 Peter chapter 3 and 1 Timothy chapter 2 that his will was for everyone to be saved. And so if his will is for everyone to be saved, then in verse five, his predestination for people to be adopted into his family was for everyone. But that doesn't mean everyone will be adopted into his family. You see, it's God's perfect plan for all humanity to be saved. But sin diverted God's perfect plan. God's perfect plan in the Garden of Eden was never for Adam and Eve to sin. That was not God's intention. Because if God intended sin, then God would not be perfect. Then God would not be good. And if God was not perfect and God was not good, then there can be no salvation. And if there is no salvation and God is not good and God is not perfect, there is no heaven. And then scripture is awash and none of it's true. See, God has to be all good and God has to be all perfect in order for uh, uh, salvation to be what it is and have the power that it does. If God was not all perfect, then Jesus' death would not have the power that it did. God had to be perfect. Jesus had to be perfect for His death to have the power to cover all of our sins. And so because He's perfect, because He's all good, Scripture is true, and so His will is for all people to be saved. So God's plan was for humanity to choose salvation by loving Him. And in order for humanity to love God, He chose not to force them to love him, or as some people would say, force some of them to love him, because someone cannot be forced to love somebody else, because love has to be an independent decision, or it's not love at all. So for love to exist, mankind had to have the option to choose to love God. Without the option to choose love, love does not exist. And if love does not exist, then God does not love the world and give His one and only Son that whosoever might believe in Him would not perish and have everlasting life. Love has to exist. And if love has to exist, choice has to exist, decision has to exist. So because love does exist, God did send His Son who would die and raise on our behalf. And so now salvation can be known by God's grace through faith. And Paul actually says that very same thing in the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. God's grace, our faith. So grace does exist outside of our faith. We don't have to believe in God for God's grace to exist. But faith is necessary for God's grace to be applied to us. We can't receive God's grace unless we believe, unless we make that choice to believe. And because of the grace being given, something we don't deserve, we have been uh, blessed with the blessing of Christ already mentioned. And so as Paul says there in verse 5 and 6, that God is then deserving of continuous praise. Now what you're going to notice throughout this passage as well is how many times Paul uses the word glory, talking about God's glory, and how because of God's glory, uh, he is deserving of constant praise. Um... And if you read much of Paul's writings, you're going to see periodically throughout almost every single one of his letters, he takes a little praise break, five, six, seven verses, and he just praises God right in the middle of his thought. And then he goes back to what he was talking about before, and he's going to do that uh, later on here. Uh, And so God is deserving of continuous praise. Uh, Now look at verses 7 and 8. In him, Jesus... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So redemption uh, redemption can be had because of Jesus's action of death. We were slaves of sin and death because of our own choices to sin. But then God brought us out of that slavery and set us free with the payment of Jesus's death and resurrection. And so through God's gracious gift, Jesus' death and resurrection, granted us forgiveness from all of our sins. And if all of our sins are forgiven, then there's nothing holding us in slavery any longer. For sin held us in bondage unto death, but the moment our sins, past, present, and future, were forgiven, there was nothing that that could hold us in bondage any longer. And so that verse there, his wisdom and insight into our own personal situations, gave him a unique perspective with which to give us more grace than we know what to do with. Uh, Look at verses 9 and 10. Making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So through God's wisdom and insight, the last thing He said there in verse 8, through God's wisdom and insight, He made His previously unknown will There's that word again, his will, known to us, which was his purpose. So his now known, unknown will is salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the mystery of the gospel. It is now known. It's not a secret anymore. So it was his purpose to send Jesus at just the right moment. That's the fullness of time. At just the right moment to usher in salvation for all who would believe and bring about the unification of heaven and earth for all eternity. That that phrase, fullness of time, it's a phrase meaning when the assigned time had reached its pinnacle. It's almost as though Paul was saying God set an alarm clock for when the best time for the gospel to be presented to the world was. And the alarm went off, the angel came, and Jesus was born into the world. Jesus came, died, and rose, and salvation came into the world. And if you study history, what's so fascinating is the very moment Jesus entered the world was the moment... It was the best moment in all of recorded history for one particular message to come to the world and be spread around the world. Because at that moment, the Roman Empire had paved so many roads. At that moment, most of the civilized world spoke one language, Greek. They spoke a bunch of other languages too. But at that particular moment, everybody spoke Greek. So you had one common language. You had roads everywhere that made it easy to travel. And so it was a unique time for the gospel to be presented to the world and taken Everywhere. And then we come to verses 11 and 12. I'll tell you this. I won't put this on the podcast. (laughs) In studying verses 11 and 12, I had a realization that I had never seen before. Because I've had a lot of people argue with me about predestination. um, And use a lot of language from Ephesians chapter 1. But there's one particular word here in verse 11 I'm going to point out to you that is translated in a unique way, but its literal meaning changes the gist of everyone's argument in relying on Ephesians chapter 1 in that way. And I'll show you. I, th- when I made this discovery yesterday. Uh, I-, I, was, I was like, what does that word even mean? And I looked it up, and then I was like, whoa, whoa hang on a minute. And so I looked it up in like 14 different Greek dictionaries and they all had the exact same meaning and i lost it uh, Because I I, like I said, I've had a lot of people and when I say a lot I mean like dozens of people argue with me about predestination using this passage Some extremely smart people some people who were on some of the committees who translated some of our modern translations and I, was run, I wasn't running, but I couldn't sit still. I found that, I mean, when, when I looked this word up, I started walking intentionally around my office. It was 4.30 yesterday afternoon. And I was talking very loudly to myself because the building was empty at that point. Last, her kid had left. And uh, I just could not believe this, that somebody would use this in a way to prove their point when it was interpreted completely incorrectly for them. But let's look at it. And I'll show you what I mean. Verses 11 and 12. Uh, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. (laughs) You'll all all understand those two verses, right? (laughs) Let's say, Paul, could you simplify it a little bit for me? In him we have obtained an inheritance. He's talking about heaven, talking about salvation, heaven being received because of salvation. Having been predestined, destined beforehand, according to the purpose of God, who works all things out according to the counsel of his will, God's will, God's perfect will. So the inheritance of eternity has been obtained as it was God's will all along. And so it's been argued that God's will for certain people to obtain the inheritance of heaven is only for those specific people he chose for heaven. And they said that's what that verse means. But the emphasis of the verse is on those who obtain the inheritance. But it's that word obtained That threw me for a loop it's very interesting because that word literally means to choose in accordance with God's will the idea almost is like what they would do back in the Old Testament and even in the first century is they would cast lots to determine what God's will was and then they would choose to follow God's will and so it's choosing to act in accordance with what God told you his will was so the choice is on the person making the choosing Choosing to follow what God said His will is. You all with me? You with me? Okay. So he says, that first section of the verse, in Him we have obtained an inheritance. But literally, in Him we have chosen in accordance with God's will the inheritance of heaven, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him. So this actually ties in both to to what he writes in the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 8, as well as what we saw a minute ago. In 2 Peter and in 1 Timothy, Paul writes that believers choose to believe. They choose to follow God's will. They they chose to follow God's perfect plan for humanity by believing in Jesus' death and resurrection, receiving the inheritance. So the idea that God chooses, but there's no choice on behalf. I mean, we can't do anything to earn our salvation. But God still wants us to believe, which is what Paul writes in the next chapter. You've got to have faith, and faith is a choice. We choose to have faith. We can't do more good than bad to earn our way into heaven. We have to rely in faith on what Jesus did on the cross. But we have to choose to make that decision. And so what Paul writes here in verse 11, he he straight says it in the Greek, that we have chosen to believe and have received an inheritance you with me? Can you understand a little bit why I was so blown away by this yesterday? (laughs) Um, Having had this verse thrown in my face many, many times, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa!" hang on a minute. And so I pulled up my software, and I start going through every one of those Greek dictionaries, and I'm like, how can every one of these say that this is what that word means? And um, so I did. If you you came up to the church after 4.30 yesterday, you heard me talking to myself an awful lot and really, really loud. Uh, (laughs) I was blown away by this. To choose in accordance with God's will, this inheritance. It's having faith. It's choosing to believe. See, faith is similar to love in that you cannot be forced to have it. If you are forced to have faith, then it's not faith. For instance, I mean, it's always used, you have faith that that chair is going to hold you up. But if I force you to sit in the chair, you're not having faith in making the decision to sit there. You're sitting there because I made you. And that's not faith. But Paul says in the next chapter, the only way to receive salvation is by God's grace through our faith. And if the faith isn't there, then there's not salvation. I would just want to say, did you say those, those who believe and respond to this call? Yes. It, it, I would say the belief is the response. Okay. That, that God's predestination is for all people. That's his will for all people to be saved. But we don't all choose to follow God's will um shows books, right. right exactly right exactly right there are some people who say jesus death only had enough power to cover those who would choose him i have a big problem with that because my that right that limits Jesus' power that limits Jesus' divine nature um right exactly what's the point of evangelism if everyone's already been chosen why try he's already picked him exactly right you can take somebody else's spot that's right uh, and my thought is too why would he give us the command to go and tell people about him if he already chose everyone who would believe it doesn't follow but he but, but just I mean straight in Paul's own words in this chapter and in the next Faith as a choice is necessary for salvation to be received. And so believers choose to believe. That's what God wanted all along. And even though we don't always choose to believe or don't always choose to follow, God does everything according to his planned will. So God always follows his will, even if we don't always follow his will. And when people choose to believe, we are also choosing, like God, to act according to God's will. We're aligning our actions and our thoughts with God's perfect will. And so there in verse 12, Paul mentions, We who were the first to hope. There. Some suggest that that right there is a reference to Jews who heard the message of the gospel first, since Jesus came as a Jew. But this whole section in Ephesians, Paul's talking about all Christians. All Christians. All throughout, he hadn't, he hadn't separated Jews and Gentiles yet. And really, the church in Ephesus was made up of Jews and Gentiles pretty equally. It wasn't just Jews, it wasn't just Gentiles, they were pretty intermixed in there. And so Paul hasn't distinguished one over the other in any capacity yet. Uh, and he doesn't mention them specifically here. And so we have to continue to assume that he's talking about all Christians because he doesn't separate them, he doesn't name Jews here. I mean, unless it's otherwise stated, it's always best in interpretation of Scripture to go with the text and its context around it rather than just making assumptions about what it could possibly mean. And so in light of verse 11, what Paul says there, he seems to be saying in verse 12 that the first generation of believers, as are all succeeding generations of believers, we are walking praises to God's glory because of our received salvation. We're walking praises in how we live and how we act and just the demonstration of the fact we do believe in, and Jesus gave himself for us. Our very life should be a walking praise to God's glory. Um, y'all, any, any questions on verse 11 and 12? Man, you guys are smart, man. This took me forever to figure this stuff out. Y'all are geniuses. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, <laughs> yeah Uh, look at verses 13 and 14 in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory and so these people to whom Paul's writing these are second generation Christians they believe because people like Paul who saw Jesus came and told them about Jesus They have heard the gospel from those first-generation Christians. And when they heard the gospel and believed, they received the Holy Spirit. Now notice there, uh, he says, they heard the word and they believed. See, hearing isn't enough. You have to choose to believe. And, And they had to choose to believe, and like it says there, in accordance with God's will. Choosing to believe was in accordance with God's will. It's just like Paul wrote there back up in verse 11. They chose in accordance with God's will that were attained. So everyone who believes then is sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the seal of authenticity, that you are actually a Christian. Only Christians receive the Holy Spirit, and all Christians receive the Holy Spirit when they believe. The Holy Spirit, he says there in that verse, is also a guarantee of heaven to come. It's almost as though the Holy Spirit were a down payment, earnest money. Uh, Proof of intent. He gives us the Holy Spirit like our our access card into heaven. I mean, the Holy Spirit is God's Spirit in us, granting us access to God's very presence in heaven. So we're guaranteed heaven because of the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. Notice also, there in that passage, uh, Paul again speaks of praising God. So it seems that praise, it's a fundamental and foundational part of Paul's life and Paul's in prison he ends up we believe we don't know for sure but we believe he gets out of prison here then gets rearrested and is beheaded for being a follower of Christ and here he is in prison in Rome praising God and telling other people you need to praise God too I and mean, if if I were in the first century in the deep dark dank Roman prisons only able to eat what I can afford, even though I'm in prison and can't work. Just transparently, I think I'd have a hard time sometimes praising God. I mean, being a 21st century American in our comfortable lives compared to the rest of the world, it'd be hard to be transported to that circumstance. But that was Paul. He's there, and he's praising God. He's telling other people to praise God, and he takes a moment to to dictate this letter to somebody else to send to a church to encourage them in their faith. He's that strong in his faith in prison. He doesn't think, well, these people aren't going to listen to this because I'm just a dude in prison. He writes the letter to encourage them in their faith. And he's praising God where he is. And look at what he says next. Offering encouragement to them. See, this should be... This should be encouragement for us that in every aspect of life, no matter what we're going through, no matter where we are, we should offer encouragement to anybody and everybody. Because we don't know where they are. We don't know what they're going through. All we can see is the outside of what we can see. We don't know what's behind the scenes. And so here's Paul in prison. Look what he says. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers so the faith of the ephesian christians and their love towards all believers has been so impactful that word of its uh, of, of their faith is spreading around and has even reached paul's ears locked away in a roman prison and so he writes i've heard about how great your faith is i've heard about how much love you have towards all of the believers and i always thank god for you remembering you when i pray So their faith is powerful. Their faith is is, is unwavering so much so that it's commendable by Apostle Paul. But also commendable is their love for other believers. Lack of love for each other was just as much a problem then as it is now. People were selfish then just like people are selfish now. Christians back then and now (laughs) treat each other poorly sometimes because of social status or clothing or history or reputation or offense. Or political affiliation or because of where somebody lived and they treat somebody as less than or treat somebody in anger or bitterness or frustration but Paul says to the Ephesians you guys aren't like that you love everybody and anybody no matter what no matter what they said to you no matter how they acted around you no matter what they did in the past you love them irregardless Paul is praising them for their limitless love that they're acting on towards all kinds of believers whom they're encountering And as a result of such reports, Paul says there, he continually thanks the Lord for them, for their faithfulness and their love. Do you have anybody in your life that you continually thank God for all the time? Sometimes when we thank God for people, what can end up happening is we become so accustomed to a thankful spirit that we stop thanking God for them. And we take them for granted because they're just there. And so we, we, we don't thank God and we don't say it to them. We don't thank them. and we, do, you know, we just take them for granted because they are there. But their consistency in and of itself should be a reason for thanking them. And so Paul says to the Ephesians, I always thank God for you. Always. And he had a special relationship with these Ephesians. He had spent uh, three years there. And on his trip to Jerusalem where he knew God had already showed him he was going to go to Jerusalem and he was going to be arrested and taken to prison. And he was going to end up going to Caesar. God had already shown him that. On his way there, he stops and spends time just with the Ephesian elders, the leaders of the church. And they they weep and they, they, they have a great time together, but then they weep as he departs because they know where he's going. And there's such great love Paul and these people have for each other. And he says, I always, I never cease to give thanks for you every time I pray. Verse 17. And then he tells us some of the, these next few verses, he tells us some of the stuff he specifically prays for these people. He says, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So he tells them he's praying for them. He's been praying that the Lord would give them the spirit's wisdom to help guide them through whatever situation. Pops up. He also prays that they would receive from the Spirit a a revealing of the knowledge of God, that revelation there of the knowledge of God. Paul wants the people to know more of God and be able to use that knowledge with Spirit filled wisdom to function in this world. And notice there again, he mentions glory again. It's almost as though he can't help but just let it fall out of him. He's so awed at God's glory. He continues to, to talk about what he's praying for them. Verses 18 and 19. He says that you, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which, you re- which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. So as Paul continues to write of his prayer to the Ephesian Christians, he speaks of glory again when talking about heaven there. Uh, This glorious inheritance there, verse 18. He prays that their eyes would be open to the hope-filled life that God designed for them to enjoy. There, verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may uh, know what is the hope to which he has called you. He wants them to live hope-filled lives. Do you ever know anybody who's just constantly filled with hope? No matter what they're hit with, it's always hopeful. It's always upbeat. It's always positive. He says, I want you to live the hope-filled lives that God designed for you to enjoy. The hope-filled life is one, like he says there, with its eyes on the glorious inheritance. You see, when heaven is our destination, hope fuels our journey as long as our eyes are on the destination. When heaven is the destination and our eyes are on the destination, hope fuels our journey. I mean, how often do we today find ourselves wallowing in everything except hope? Worry, anxiety, control, fear, frustration, offense, anger, bitterness, uncertainty, or unnecessary busyness. And we, I I use that word intentionally, wallow in those things, rather than basking in the hope that he intended us to have. And just as Paul prayed for these people, we ought to pray for ourselves and for each other this very same thing. These verses that Paul starts talking about his prayer here ought to be something we pray for ourselves and for those around us. To have these things. Having our eyes opened, then that we would anticipate the greatness of the coming of heaven And how immeasurable God's power is. We would then get a sense of how truly unlimited His power is. Leading us to a realization of awe. And gaining what Paul had in his constant mention of glory. Because he had that sense of how powerful and great God was. And so he couldn't help but talk about God's glory without fail. Uh, Look at verses 20 and 21. Continuing to talk about his prayer that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So the incomparable power of God raised Jesus from the dead and, and seated Him in the seat of power, on the throne in heaven with authority and majesty, far greater than any that has ever existed or will ever exist in the future. So God's glory, Jesus' glory, far exceeds any attempt by any created being to attain any semblance of glory for themselves or some other organization or even their own nation or entity. Do you all know anybody who's ever trying to constantly attain glory for themselves or something else or what they're working towards? He's saying Jesus' glory far exceeds any attempt that any created being tries and the difference between those two is that Jesus's glory comes from his very nature it is not attained it is not achieved it's just who he is while any glory that we try to attain it's manufactured and so those two kinds of glory aren't even in the same category can't even reach his level last two verses thank you I can't help but fiddle with my pen And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now that verse 22, that is a quote from Psalm chapter 8, verse 6. Put all things under his feet, gave him head over all things. Um, In his description, uh, God is placing all things in their proper place. Everything in all creation, it's subservient to the almighty power of Jesus. In addition... He says there that Jesus is the head of the church. He is to direct its action. He is to direct its going, its coming, its spending, its ministry, momentum, fruitfulness. In short, everything associated with the church is meant to come directly from the instruction of Jesus. The fullness of Jesus and His Spirit has the capacity to fill all things and guide all things and direct all things. So the church... And the individuals therein are to be filled with the fullness of Christ in every aspect of their lives and function, because he is the head and we are not. And So that's what that means when he says, he is head over all things to the church, which is his body, and the fullness of him fills all in all. When we allow him to, when we choose to follow him, his spirit fills us and we can be directed then by his spirit and guided by his spirit. Any questions about Ephesians chapter 1? If you were here for any of the Galatians study, you can, you can tell a little bit Paul, the way he writes is a little more mature than it was before. Um, he, he hasn't used any harsh language yet. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's also it's as though he's writing to mature Christians in a way that he wasn't when he was writing to the Galatians. It was like, it's like when you talk to your kids. It's, it's, Galatians is almost like he's, he's writing to his kids when they're like 7, 8, 9, 10. And then Ephesians, he's writing to his kids when they're 25, 26, 27, uh, maybe 30 kind of deal. It, it, they're different age, different maturity, different levels. Um, not that there weren't people in the Galatian church that weren't mature, and not that there weren't pe- people in the Ephesian church that weren't immature. Uh, but the way he writes and he's also matured I mean it's years down the road he's a different person now than he was then he's had a lot more experience and he's writing from prison he's got a lot of time to reflect about AD 60 Ephesians and uh, we believe Galatians was written sometime before that 5, 10, 15 years somewhere in there Uh, well more than 5 more than 5 years Um, so maybe somewhere in the 10 year range do what? Didn't he spend more time with the people at yes. Ephesus than he did? Oh, yes. Far and go. away. I mean, he was with Galatia, I mean, he was in Galatia maybe a year and a half, maybe. Um, so at least twice as long, if not more than that. I mean, even before he spent that three-year stint in, in, in Ephesus, he had stopped by on like he'd spent one night on his way somewhere else, and he came back and spent three years there. Um, and so he was so intrigued by that, but then... We can see because of the connection he made with the people and spending time with the elders on his way to be arrested. There was a connection with the people of Ephesus that was powerful. I mean, you can look back in, in your own personal history and, and you can know people that you have a connection with and love for in a powerful way. Uh, maybe even people you hadn't seen in 5, 10, 15 years. But that connection's still there um, because of something that happened, a common experience possibly or something that went down. And there's a genuine love there. And we can see that Paul has that for these people in Ephesus. And so far, he hasn't really, he hasn't chastised them. Like, I mean, in Galatians, I mean, he starts right off at the beginning. You guys are dumb. And let's get right down to the issue here. Uh, But in Ephesus, this is all about theology and trying to spur them on into a deeper faith so far. Um, And so it's interesting. Yeah. Any other questions about Ephesians chapter 1? All right. Well, next week we'll, we'll dive into Ephesians chapter 2 and see what goes down there. Uh, but let me pray for us. God, I thank you for today. And I thank you for Paul. And I thank you for Ephesians. I thank you for the way he writes and how encouraging he is not just to the people he's writing to, but to us today. Now, you know, millennia later reading this and how encouraging this can be to us in our current predicaments today. But also how instructive it is and how we're to interact with each other and treat each other with that same kind of love, irregardless of the people who confront us and people who come into our lives and you bring into our lives. and We're to love all of them. And to to demonstrate the love you had for us. And to choose love and to choose faith. Constantly, at every opportunity and at every juncture. So God, I pray we would follow you wholeheartedly. Full of faith. Because as he writes there in verse 23, you have filled us. God, we thank you. In your name I pray. Amen.